Hi, I'm Guy Raz. And I'm Mindy Thomas. And together, we bring you Wow in the World. NPR's podcast for families. Every week, we explore wild and new scientific discoveries. We also ride a bird. We also ride a bird. Find Wow in the World on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Lion Hotel in Washington, D.C. isn't like other hotels. For one thing, it's in a former church. This was a Church of Christian Science, which I believe was built in the early 1900s. That's Jack Inslee. He works here, and he's giving me a tour of the hotel lobby, which is in the middle of the former church's nave. The check-in desk is where the sanctuary had been. So you can see we're looking up, and there's a chandelier made of the pipe organs from, uh, you know, the pipes from the organ. Um, A lot of the original milk glass is still intact from the church. So a lot of the details were kept really as much as they were able to. Everything about the space telegraphs cool, from the straight out of Brooklyn hotel staff to the reclaimed Rothko style church pews. Also, there's a radio station in the hotel's atrium. Why is there a radio station in the lobby of this hotel? Well, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think that the hotel wanted a way to interact with the community very directly which is why rather than making what would traditionally be a retail space in front of the hotel, it was like, let's put a radio station here. When you walk through the hotel doors, on your right, you'll see a small cafe. On your left, you'll see a glass room. Inside the glass room is a table outfitted with microphones. Just beyond the table is the control room. This is full-service radio. Can we go take a look? I would love to show you. Yes, let's do it. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on the show, we have dug into the wide world of podcasting to bring you the smartest shows, the cleverest people, and the most vital conversations in this emerging medium. I say we have because this right here is our very last episode. Ooh, tiny tear. The Big Listen is going off the air. No new episodes after this one, friends. But more on that later. For now, we have a show to do. When we left our pal Jack Inslee at the Line Hotel in D.C., he was about to show us the hotel's radio studio. See, everyone wants to get into the podcast game these days, even boutique hotels. So this is Allison and Paige who host um, the first show on Thursdays called GTFO Radio. That stands for Get the F Out, if you didn't know. Allison Lane and Paige Plissner's show is one of 33 produced at Full Service Radio, and Inslee is their producer. Lane is pretty into the whole recording studio in hotel lobby thing. This is like the coolest thing. I have to admit, it is pretty cool. It's also like the most 2018 thing that could ever happen. We're going to visit some more with our pals at Full Service Radio in a bit to see how the space is creating opportunity and connection in the nation's capital. But first, we're going to talk about something that isn't so 2018. Email. Over the course of your life, I bet you had at least a dozen email addresses. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that at least a couple of those have been super embarrassing. I see you, LusciousCherry94 at AOL.com. You've got mail. Comedian Nicole Dressbell can relate. Not only has she had deeply mortifying email addresses, but she's also sent more than her fair share of ridiculous emails. And all things email, from Amazon confirmations to reenacting G-chats of yore, make perfect podcast fodder. So Matt and I are going to read it okay. for you, Rachel. Great. Okay. I'm playing the, uh, the gentleman playing... caller. Oh, okay. I'm playing Rachel? Yeah. Okay. So that I can bias it and put a little bit of flirt in my read. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, thanks for telling us in advance. Yep. Okay. 
Uh, you still sick? 50-50. I spent the day in bed, but I'm now semi-recovered. Oh, good. Yes, I don't understand how a little cold can fell a capable human being such as myself. Dem viruses is sneaky. Ugh, I know. Dressbell is probably best known for her turn on Broad City, where she played Alana Wexler's beleaguered co-worker. Four and three and two and one, one. Day 283. Think I saw a stray dreadlock wearing no bra. Alana was wearing no bra, not the dreadlock. Obviously, the dreadlock was wearing no bra. But she's also a writer on The Chris Gethard Show and a performer with the Upright Citizens Brigade. On the side, she hosts the show Inbox with her pal Matt Straup. Nicole Dressbell, co-host of Inbox, welcome to The Big Listen. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, Okay, so I want to know what was it about email that made you and your co-host want to dig into that particular topic and use that as a to mine for comedy gold, as you guys say. We do say when we remember to say. Right. Exactly. Sometimes it's just mining for comedy, which doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. It falls apart. (laughs) Uh, So in the interest of full disclosure, Audio Boom approached us, Mm -hmm. Brendan Regan, uh, was on a, an improv team for a really long time with Matt and I. Uh-huh. And he came up with the concept for the episode. Right. Or the concept for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he approached me and I approached Matt because we've been talking about doing something together. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about... Um, I I studied history. I'm a recreational history nerd. And I really like the idea of primary source documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing about email is we get the benefit of looking at a primary source document. Here's the actual thing as sent, um, frozen in time, and we can make whatever uh, judgments or observations about that. And then we can also interview the source of the document themselves. It's right. not just the document existing by itself. And then also we're kind of interviewing a historian about it, too, because <laughs> I think and this might be uppity for a comedy podcast. <laughs> But I do think like we are always kind of constructing our own histories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sort of get three different takes, the document itself, the person who wrote it, and then the person who wrote it looking back later on what made them write it. Yeah. And that's the thing I really like about it. That's interesting. I never thought of emails as like primary source document um, or really anything that, um, you know, like I don't consider my emails terribly important or even sort of part of my own history, but I guess they are, right? Matt and I, as a gesture of goodwill, open a gesture of goodwill and narcissism, right. open every episode with something we sent or received from our own inboxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first few months we were doing it, that research portion really messed me up. <laughs> I would be like doing it really quickly before we went to the studio to go talk about somebody else. And I'd be like, what was, what was I, th- who was I then? <laughs> Following email was sent by Nicole Dressbell eight years ago this week. Subject line, headshot, body of the email. I don't have one. I need to get one. Please do not use the Rice Krispie shot. Yeah, so for a long time, my professional photograph on the Upright Citizens Brigade performer page was me holding a giant Rice Krispie treat because I liked the way my face looked in it. Okay. I so, still haven't gotten a professional headshot. But it's, oh, you haven't? Nope. So we're still using the Rice Krispie shot? No, we're not using that. We're using a picture my roommate took in our kitchen. Gotcha. I feel like you're at the point where you probably should go ahead and get one of those. Or, you know, is it like, uh, you know, if it hasn't happened yet. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Do you know when you first started using email? The email account that we use on the show, I got right after college. But email itself, I was on AOL in like 
gosh, junior high? Yeah. Uh, maybe earlier than that. And right. thank gosh I don't have access to my high school email. Thank <laughs> gosh I don't have access to that. Who were you emailing in high school? Like, what were you even writing about in junior high? And who were you writing to? Do you remember? Uh, I mean, friends, because if you had AOL for chatting, you also basically had it for email. Right. I think everybody has made this mistake at least once in their life. I have only made it once in my life and will only make it once in my life. I sent an email about the boy I had feelings <gasps> for to the boy I had feelings no. for. And I don't know if I unsent. I don't think I did. I think I failed to unsend. How can you do that? You can unsend these? AOL had an unsend oh. function as long as they hadn't opened it yet. Right. Wait. Can you believe we've regressed? We don't. That's like not normal anymore. I know. I know. You have basically a five second window yes. to realize. And then you're like, no, no, unsend, unsend. Yep. Wait. So how did you accidentally? You know, when you're thinking about someone, you put their name in the to field. So you've never, ever sent another accidental, embarrassing email to anybody? No, because anytime I'm sending something even remotely loaded or dangerous, I stop. I stare at the two field. I say the name of who it is out loud again and again and again. And then I hit send <laughs> every time, every a text message, uh, absolutely any time. Are you so like conjuring an image of them or something by saying their name? Is this like some kind it's of just me being like thing? this doesn't say the name of the boy I have a crush on. This doesn't. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't. OK, I can send it. Right. OK. OK. So you're just sort of like reminding yourself this is safe. Confirming. Right. It's, confirming. it's the it's the same part of me that stands in. This is this is revealing. Same part of me that stands in front of my stove and says, the stove is off. Yeah. Now I can leave my home. <laughs> that's it's exactly the same part. Right. I t and I I totally understand that. I think that's an important check to have on yourself. One thing that you and um, and Matt, your co-host, um, touched on the show was how women soften their emails um, mm -hmm. oftentimes, especially when it's work-related. I don't think I send a lot of you know confrontational emails. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But I think, and maybe I'm making something gendered that's not, I think for women, the vast majority of emails we send we're concerned could be confrontational. Even if there's like no reality in which that would be the case. Yeah. Right. Well, it was kind of confrontational when you called me a dummy about my podcasting question, but that's it. Did I say dummy or did you say no, dummy? you implied it. You implied it. Wow. And here's what I would say. All that I did in the email that I sent to you was not include a greeting and just clarify the point and then provided you with the information. And yet, I know. And yet it's on true. this very podcast, we implied that I had a tone problem. It's true. And it was wow. Making wow. See? Why do you think we do that? Do you do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, yes, I often do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is because the danger of not being liked, whether it's real or perceived, feels immediate to women in a way that it maybe doesn't for men. Mm -hmm. And I think regardless of whether or not it should matter, it affects women's standing when we talk about them as being unlikable in a way that it doesn't for men. Mm -hmm. You have dug into many different people's emails. Also, I'm guessing you, you can't just go prowling through their inbox 100%, right? Exactly. No, they're there and we're using prompts yeah. to sort of direct us. Mm -hmm. um, but they are the ones at the keyboard. Right, right. Like you um, like you have this segment on your show where you dig into people's email drafts. And I, I thought, that. my God, if you did that to mine, I would... I would have a heart attack and die right there. 
at the microphone because it's there it's so embarrassing. Really? Yes. What are you saving? <laughs> I think it's more that I'm using it as like a like a brain dump or a way yes. to process emotions and this Whoa. is the easiest way to do it. Like I don't journal, you know. So right, I just but- dump it in an email. Do you not do that? You don't have your what your draft inbox doesn't look like that? No, my I actually journal physically, which oh. is a thing I would never want anyone to see. It's so crazy to me. I think about this as a person who came of age with like the discovery of the internet. Mm-hmm. It is wild to me that the default now is that your email address is going to be your name. Yeah. Because when you were first on the internet, it was like you never want anyone to know who you actually are. The more hidden you are, the better. And mm-hmm. now it's like you showed up somewhere with an email address that was a reference to rent yeah. or Star Wars. They would think you were bananas. Right. They wouldn't take you seriously. Right. Even if it wasn't work-related, you know, people would say, oh, gosh, she's she's stuck in the early aughts. Yes. You know? Yes. I say that, but my boyfriend's email address is one of those addresses, and he still uses it professionally. I wonder what surprising things you've learned from digging into people's email, if at all. I guess there's something surprising about how similar people are. Mm -hmm. My favorite segment is the YouTube segment that we do, where we just look at people's YouTube history. (laughs) And everyone kind of, like, you're watching different things, but you're all kind of using it the same way, which Mm -hmm. is just like looking for comfort and then falling down a rabbit hole. Yes. Or looking for information and then falling down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to me in that we haven't seen anyone who's not doing that or not using it that way. What's your tube history? Okay, so just before we go, every day I like to let, would like to let you know that every day I watch every clip from The View. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Why don't you just watch The View? Um, because, I mean, we live in a fast-paced world where right. it's just easier to <laughs> consume segments right. of things. Fine. So you might, like, break it up a little bit. Yeah, I break it up. Yeah. It's kind of a nice thing to do at work. Yeah. You know, take a little break. Let's go watch segment two now. I got gotcha. you. That's fair. I'm a okay. big Whoopi fan. I've also been growing my hair all recently. I just want to say that before we start. Wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? Because I search a lot of crazy tutorials where, like, and I'm also very into like vlogs of men who are attractive, but also who have like maybe some useful information. So, if there, if if I search that a lot, and I just I find it like my ASMR is like men talking about products. So absolutely no judgment. But you are researching what to do with your hair as it grows out, not how to grow out your hair, which is what I thought you were talking about. No, yeah, no. Just let it go. Also, can I ask a loaded question? Are you potentially growing out your hair in the style of this attractive young man with sort of shaggy, curly brown hair? I think I like the way his is, but I don't know if we have the same. Is there a recent rabbit hole you've fallen down in terms of YouTube or your your own sort of internet usage? Yeah, there is one... The other, oh my gosh, I don't even like this musical, and yet I lost hours of my morning the other day watching clips from Cats. <laughs> I don't know what I was chasing. It was like I read something somewhere, and then that made me go look at something, and then all of a sudden I was trying to chase down this documentary from the mid-90s about Cats, and it was, I was like, why? where have I gone? <laughs> I don't like this. Why am I watching all of this? I feel like there's an element. Um, I mean, I don't feel like there is an element of voyeurism um, in yes. in your show. Talk to me about that and how you feel, you know, reading other people's emails. I don't love that. That was actually something I struggled with when we started doing the podcast because I'm also overly sensitive and arrogant. So I was like, mm. oh, should we be doing something like this in a 
post-WikiLeaks world where <laughs> everyone's getting hacked and are we asking for it? And, I, and again, I overthink things and I'm self-important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, don't, I really do try to undercut any sense of um, you're not in control. We're looking at your things and you can't stop us. Right. Um, we sometimes that is where the jokes tend to go if you're listening, but mm-hmm. within the room itself, it's we're very much checking in with the person whose email we're uh, looking at because mm-hmm. I don't want it to feel invasive. It should feel maybe occasionally embarrassing. I feel like one of the embarrassing things also is when um when you and your co-host Matt um create an email for somebody that they're going to send yes. to somebody else and that if they lose this quiz question, you know, the, at the end, uh, this trivia question, then they have to send it. But we also do tell people when you're picking your person, we want something that's like going to have a little bit of stakes, but we do not want to ruin your life. Right. We talk a little bit off mic about who this person's going to be. And we really do push people somewhere where it's like, oh, it would be annoying, embarrassing, but not like you won't have to do cleanup afterwards. Mm-hmm. But Elisa Kreisinger was on Mm -hmm. and lost Mm -hmm. and had to send this email to a recent um, person that she had worked with and it had not gone great. And I was sick about it four days afterwards. (laughs) We can read the email. Um, I've been thinking a lot about our experience working together, centered in the body of the email and underlined. Mm -hmm. First bullet point, I know you were just doing your job. Second bullet. But I felt, sub-bullet, invisible, ignored, like an inconvenience, as though my emotions were out of control, not a victim, my organization. Proper bullet, like aligned, like justified left. In conclusion, sub-bullet, I feel the need to soften this email so that you don't think I'm a bitch and need to complain about this to your coworkers. Oh, we never finished that email, did we? Or is that <laughs> I it? I think we decided that that was fe- finished. Okay. Do we want to okay. add something to it? Well, I want to say, great reading of that. We haven't done an update on the podcast yet, but I spoke to her about it, and she, I think the person was like, did you mean to send this to me? And Elisa was like, no. Nope. So everyone just walk away. We want to go more towards absurd and less towards, like, pointed or nasty. And it's right. sometimes a hard line to walk. Because it, it can feel like the person receiving it is sort of the butt of a joke. Yeah. But what we're trying to go for is like this would be an absurd thing to have to sign your name to at the end. Right. I couldn't help but think about the movie You've Got Mail when mm-hmm. um, listening to your show. Um, do you have any thoughts on that movie starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks? I think it is an excellent, all-time excellent movie. And even if we don't use email the way that we used it then, I think there's something timeless about it. Right. Well, it, it's timeless, but also it is, it's like a delightful little time capsule. Oh, it really is. Yeah. And also a delightful little reminder that AOL happened. <laughs> right. Because right? right. we wouldn't be using the internet the way we do, I think, if we didn't have AOL. But also, who's using AOL anymore? Nicole Dressbell is the co-host of Inbox from Audio Boom. To find out more about her work, check out biglisten.org. We're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, we'll chat with musician John Darneal about co-hosting a podcast all about his own art. Talking about myself is always going to be weird to me in some way, even though, like, if you catch me in casual conversation, I probably wind up talking about myself plenty. But first, we're going to check in with our pal Jack Inslee about running a radio station out of a hotel lobby. 
when I tell people it's like we do 33 podcasts a week, they're like, "Who edits all those? That's crazy!" And yeah. it's like, "Well, they're they're live to tape, so right. it's more of like an FM radio sort of feel." That's coming up in a sec. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hi, my name is Earl Gray Anderson. I live in Winnetka, California. Uh, I've been listening quite frequently to uh, Ryan Sprague's uh, podcast called Somewhere in the Skies. This is the woman I never told anyone about. When I was 17, I lost my virginity to a female extraterrestrial. That's all I can say about it. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. So I've been researching the UFO phenomenon for about two decades now. Excellent podcast. It's interesting guests. He's written a book by the same title, Somewhere in the Skies. It's a, a must read. And uh, that's what I've been listening to. So thank you very much. And uh, have a great day. Hey pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I'm still a little bit rattled by that man losing his virginity to an alien. Anyway, thanks so much to Earl Gray Anderson for calling in with his recommendation. And thanks to all of you who have called the pod line over the years. We have loved hearing what Off the Beaten Path shows you've been listening to. Speaking of off-the-beaten-path shows, we figured we'd hit you with a final installment of our little featurette. Wait, what? Have you ever happened upon a podcast and thought to yourself, wait, what? They have a podcast? Who listens to that? Well, I promise you you're not alone. We have two, and we wanted to showcase some of those truly unbelievable shows. Our guide for Wait What today will be our intern, Jacqueline Hyman. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey, Lauren. What's going on? What do you got for me? Okay, so what I have today is a podcast about a topic that I did not think I would be interested in, but ended up being pretty fun. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast no. with me, your host, <laughs> Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. There are some hunting podcasts and some animal podcasts, right. but... This podcast is pretty unique. There is no other podcast out there that is devoted 100% to turkeys and turkey hunting. There are tips about how to turkey hunt. There are expert guests who either share their techniques and or promote their turkey hunting related products. (laughs) Andy also shares a lot of his personal stories on the podcast. But like, how did this guy get into it? What is his deal? Great question. Thank you. I called him up. He lives in Alabama. Right. And he took a break from his day job in the mortgage business to talk to me. Why did I choose podcasting and why did I choose turkeys? Well, turkeys are my real passion. Like I said, I can talk about turkeys all day long. He's talking turkey. Yeah. And we really did talk turkeys for a long time. A long time. I had a really terrible experience with a turkey when I was really? younger. I watched a turkey attack a child oh and they're no they're no joke. So ever since then I've actually been <laughs> You're scared of them. It's, terrifying of turkey. <laughs> it's funny because I actually told him my own like cousin's neighbor has like turkey pens in their backyard. So if you stand in my cousin's backyard and go 
the turkeys will respond to you. This is an amazing hobby. Andy really, really goes deep into the mind of the turkey. Okay. So I'm talking down to literally knowing their patterns, their moods. So and so Andy's getting into the mind of the turkey. Like he's he a turkey does. whisperer. And so it really feels when he's hunting like he's kind of playing a back and forth game with the turkey. It is really a chess match. And it's embarrassing, but I don't mind saying that I have gotten beaten by this bird with a brain the size of the end of my thumb. I can't tell you how many times. Way more than I've beaten them. So I have a photo for you. Oh, what? Of Andy with a turkey that he has killed. Is the turkey dead? Yes. Oh, boy. Oh, man. (laughs) That is... First of all, that's gigantic, and right. I'm glad I don't have to look at his face. But also, Andy could not look happier in his real tree camouflage outfit. <laughs> what a cutie. Andy does not waste the turkey. Okay. He either eats the turkey when he brings it home. Right. Or if he's traveling and hunting out of state, he'll give the meat to the people oh. whose land that he's hunting on. Okay. Okay. That's fair. He does save a little piece of each turkey for himself, though. What does that mean? He creates what he calls trophies out of the beards and feet. My trophy room has now taken over the the entire house, except for my master bedroom. My wife draws a line somewhere. (laughs) God bless her. She's like, can we get rid of some of these animals and hang some pictures on the wall? God, Andy, his wife is probably an angel. Oh, uh, yeah. She even lets, you know, rotting bird parts, like, hang out in their living room. Yeah, and the show is quite popular. He actually said that his most popular was 50,000 downloads in one month. (laughs) That's a lot of turkey hunters. And most of his iTunes ratings are five stars. Well, I mean, he sounds like a really great dude. I'd give him five stars. (laughs) Maybe I'd give him five gobbles. Gobbles. Can I do that? (laughs) Five... But his favorite feedback is when people either send him or post on Facebook pictures of turkeys that they say his podcast helped them catch. Whether that's a first turkey or a 50th turkey, it doesn't matter. That feedback just puts a huge smile on my face. That kind of stuck with me. You know, turkey hunting was definitely not something that I thought about ever before listening to this podcast. But after talking to him, you know, it seems pretty interesting. It's a unique thing to do. You going to go out and uh, try your luck at hunting those I just uh, may. I actually now have a personal invitation (laughs) to go learn how to turkey hunt with the host of the Turkey Hunter podcast. Jacqueline, if you want to come to Alabama and hunt turkeys, I will gladly take you on a turkey hunt. Wow. (laughs) Looks like you're taking a trip to Alabama. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you bringing this incredible show to my attention. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank you for... (laughs) That's how we sign off from now on. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. What? So, here we go. Remember our pal Jack Inslee from the top of the show? 
He's the executive producer of Full Service Radio, which has its home base in the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Washington, D.C. This project isn't Inslee's first radio studio in a non-traditional venue. A while back, he started Heritage Radio at the back of a pizza restaurant in Brooklyn, but with a twist. What if we put two shipping containers in the back of your restaurant and I build a radio station in there? They're like, yeah, sure. And it's Bushwick. It's 2009. It was just anarchy. And (laughs) like, yeah, sure. Why not? So if he could set up an internet radio station in shipping containers, he could certainly put together a studio in a hotel lobby. Thus began Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio is an online radio station and podcast network. So that means all of our shows are live to tape and then subsequently made available as podcasts. All the shows are hosted by folks from the D.C. area, and the topics run the gamut from Middle Eastern culture to small business advice to electronic music. Anyone can listen to the shows on the web. And then the really novel thing is... If you have a room in this hotel, you turn the TV on and there's a live feed of the audio from this room. At 11 a.m. Thursdays, guests can hear Allison Lane and Paige Plissner's show, GTFO Radio. Oh my God. Good morning. It's time to GTFO. I did it. I caught the beat. And And the the beat got sicker. Yes, it did. When the pair <laughs> records their show, they are on full display to everyone in the lobby. And Lane says that can cause some anxiety. I feel like I need to be attractive on the radio, <laughs> which might be the most ridiculous thing. I got into this so you didn't have to look at me, but here I am in this wonderful fishbowl at this beautiful hotel. Not only do they need to worry about what they look like when they're recording the show, but Lane and Blizzner say they have to deal with gawkers. People like to hide behind the columns and stare at me and then move to the next column. (laughs) I have to say it's a lot of old people and children that do it, though, for whatever reason. They're more inclined to stare. But all that is part of the novelty of having a glass-walled radio studio inside of a hotel lobby. Inslee says he thinks the exposure is part of the magic. Having um, a recording studio and specifically like a radio studio in a public space just creates this like real alchemy and interaction with the public. And I think that not only is useful for the public to have a window into the process and how these things go, but I think it changes the show itself and the reaction that the hosts are having. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to chat with musician John Darneal about the goal of making a podcast all about his own music. So this is sort of trying to find a way to to locate what's inside a song and express it in some way other than just listening to it. That's coming up next. Stick around. This is NPR. When C.C. Wong met his mom's new tenant, he never suspected he'd end up getting replaced as a son, or that his replacement might have sinister motives. This week, Invisibilia looks at the things we don't say to our loved ones and the misunderstandings it can lead to. Listen on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there. Uh, My name is Beth Brown, and I'm calling uh, presently in Miami. And I listen to Writing Class Radio because I want to write, and this podcast absolutely makes me want to write. 
And the teacher um, is a woman named Andrea Oskowitz, and she blows my mind with great feedback to all her listeners. Today we're talking about getting out of our own way when writing a story. The writing process starts with getting the truth on paper. We write about situations or problems we're dealing with or have dealt with, something we're still trying to understand or resolve. The goal is getting to the reason we're writing the story and what the story is really about. I'm a huge believer in writing and rewriting. That's my process. Every time I listen to this, I put the phone down and I absolutely write. And that's all I can say about it. It's pretty fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And thanks to Beth in Miami for taking the time to call in with her recommendation. And thanks to all the other recommenders who have dialed up the pod line with podcast suggestions. We so appreciate you sharing your faves with us. Now, a lot of us have a favorite musician or band. Mine is Dolly Parton. She's a genius. Someone make her president, please. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. Folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. What a way to make a living. But while I love me some Dolly, there's no way I'd be able to make a podcast with her. I would literally succumb to cardiac arrest. But that's not how Joseph Fink felt. He had no problem asking his favorite musician, John Darnielle, to be his co-host on a show devoted to Darnielle's band, The Mountain Goats. Fink is the creator of the podcast Welcome to Night Vale, and he has loved The Mountain Goats for as long as he can remember. And he's always wanted to unpack Darnielle's albums song by song, starting with the 2002 release All Hail West Texas. So this is an All Hail West Texas notebook. I'm looking, we're looking for Jenny. Welcome. To I only listen to the Mountain Goats. I'm thumbing through old note- notebooks to see if I can find the original lyric to Jenny. So far, there's a bunch of other stuff. No, this never got done. So this one is, I think, a Sunset Tree notebook, but it doesn't have Jenny in it, which is the song under discussion today. One of my favorites off the record. Joseph Fink and John Darniel, co-hosts of I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Welcome to The Big Listen. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having us. So I, I want to talk about how did this come to fruition? I had this idea years ago. I have ideas for a lot of podcasts. I feel oh. like most <laughs> most artists um, have way more ideas than they'll ever in their lifetime be able to do anything with. And mm-hmm. it's a matter of just, you know, choosing occasionally being like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with this idea. My original conception for it was because um, there have been a lot of mountain goat songs somewhere in the hundreds. John, I don't know if you know. I have no idea. I mean, you have no, 16 I, I, studio albums, right? So that's a lot of songs for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I only ever count like the last 20 or so. <laughs> <laughs> and so my original conception, because I'm kind of obsessed with using randomization in art, was to randomly select using a random number generator one of those songs each episode and then talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, this was long before I, Night Vale had happened. This was before I knew John. And so it was just one of these. Oh, that would be a cool project. Um, and then Night Vale happened. Um, and through that, I met John. And so a few years later, I realized that this was a, a project that I could do, and it, and it seemed interesting. Um, I, I, I've made two different fiction podcasts, mm-hmm. but I've never tried to do a nonfiction podcast, and so this seemed like a worthwhile place to start with that. Mm-hmm. How did you guys first meet? Do you remember? 
I mean, he, um, no. <laughs> I, I, I do remember. Uh, John was one of the very first people with any following at all to talk about Night Vale online. Mm-hmm. Uh, really early on. I, I think fans told him about it in, in Grand Sign Rapids, Line, Michigan, I think is where, um, where a fan asked me whether I listened to it or not. Love you, Michigan. And you <laughs> tweeted about it, and John reached out to us when we started to tour with this email of, like, here's some thoughts on touring, and here's some ways to tour in a way that is healthy. And mm-hmm. uh, it was an incredibly helpful email. This was the thing about Joseph's touring, is, like, I saw the announce, and uh, and it was just it was just bonkers. It was, like, you know, 25 dates in a row yeah. with no days off. And then I remember the year that I lost my mind, right? Right. that that is completely, you know, my crying well awake year. And one of the problems was you you have five dates in a row, but you have like eight people in the van. So if you have a day off, then any money you made over the past six days, a lot of that's going into the hotel Mm -hmm. and the food and so forth. You're not making any money that night. And it gets in your head if you think about it. And there's a lot of bands to this day that like that despise days off, but mm-hmm. you have to have them or you will go nuts. And uh, and so I said, I have to call this guy and say, you know, you have to take care of yourself. I understand that days off cost a ton of money and the more people you have in the van, the harder it is. But if you don't take days off, you will grow to hate each other and your work. So I do these sorts of, you know, uh, uh, Grandpa John interventions <laughs> yeah, from time right. to time. So. Some pro bono <laughs> assistance for, uh, for yeah. fellow artists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I can't, I, I get, I, I have an empathic thing where I see those and I just picture the mood inside the yeah. van on day 12. Oh. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, I'm wondering, Joseph, for you, what was it about John's music or what is it about John's music that speaks to you so much that you wanted to pursue this project? I mean, that's it, it, a difficult thing to say because how do you how do you explain why an artwork works for you? You know, and a, a lot of it is is gut level. I I think there you know I I was raised religiously Jewish. Religion is something that is both very interesting and very important to me, and I do think there is something of a religious feeling to John's music. Not mm-hmm. that it is religious music. But that he his music often keys into those things about being human that religion keys into. Come on in. We haven't slept for weeks. Drink some of this. It'll put color in your cheeks. In the case of color in your cheeks, I just got an idea to tell a story about a bunch of people in a room or a house. You know, I remember like liking from the first line of it that it wasn't a romantic song. There's no me and you in here. Mm-hmm. There's us and y'all. So I started writing this story that turns out to be about sanctuary, which in, we talked a lot about religion last time uh, we did this, but like sanctuary is a profound notion. In my favorite musical of all time, The Gospel at Colonus, that's what they talk about, Oedipus seeking sanctuary. I grew up listening to The Gospel at Colonus. It's literally it, uh, my favorite thing of all time. That's the the gospel choir. Yeah. yeah. Morgan Freeman uh, in the in the version that they used to have on VHS that for years you could not find at all. I, and now it's on YouTube. I listened to that on cassette tape. My parents owned it. I could recite the whole thing for you. It's, <laughs> and, the other thing, and I think especially as somebody, you know, I moved to New York. Um, so I left, I left behind the Jewish community I was a part of in Southern California. And it's really hard to be Jewish without your community. It's a very communal religion. And it seems weird to be like I moved to New York and I couldn't find any Jews, but I couldn't. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I couldn't couldn't find a Jewish community that worked for me. So I I do think I was really hungry for those things that 
regularly going to synagogue had done for me. And I found some of that in John's music. Yeah, yeah. You, um, I think one of the delightful aspects of this show is that each episode, you all ask a different artist to cover the song that you're talking about. You've had Amanda Palmer, Laura Jane Grace, Aaron McEwen, etc. And I wonder what it's like to hear different folks interpreting your work in very different ways or, or ways that are uh, unique to their style of, of music. You know, it's a total hoot. And the thing is, like, that's a mature position because I remember when people were first covering my songs in 94. <laughs> right. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't stand it. I couldn't. I would be like, I, I even if, I don't know if this is good or bad, but it's like that's not how I would say it, you know. But for one thing, the, the mix we have is diverse enough in style, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it's very interesting to me. The ones I like best are the ones that take possession of the song that, mm-hmm. that you know, that don't say... I want to yell like John yells on on the record. I, I like the Ibibio sound machine just takes it way out to the walls. Come on in. We haven't slept for weeks. Drink some of this. It'll put color in your cheeks. Uh, the Riches and Wonders one treats it with a real, uh, a really classical vocal approach mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, which I'm, you know, not a classically trained vocalist. And oh, and you know, mothers do this, this mm-hmm. absolutely wild thing. You know, really, I wanted to slow it down and to shift the pacing of the chord changes and of the vocal delivery. And so kind of coming up with that drum beat, which was uh, Matthew's doing, that was sort of the groundwork of how we put everything else on top of it. So the drum beat was really the first thing that we came up with. And then we put down synthesizer and then bass and then the guitar. Vocals were in there somewhere um, <laughs> as well. <laughs> but and we sort of extended some of the chords to make it feel a little softer around the edges to make it feel a little less major sounding. And then, yeah. you know, I, I wanted it to feel soft and have kind of a, a melancholy sweetness and be more like a lullaby than the original version of the song. That's the stuff that I like. I like the stuff that sounds like it's being made by people who are pretending they wrote it themselves. Mm-hmm. Joseph, for you, the idea of doing that was, or I guess what was the the inspiration for having the cover um, in addition to the original song. I mean, that was part of the idea from the start. If you're looking at a song, um, I think we often conflate a song with its performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we we have a tendency where we think of the song and the, the person who wrote the song singing it as the same thing. And having these covers that took different treatments of this these songs John had wrote, written forced us to not do that it forced us to look at it in two different ways one was the song as john performed it but also the song as it exists the song as it was written and how someone else might perform it so hearing hearing a very different treatment of a song can kind of make us think about that song in a very different way Mm -hmm. for me in listening to the show such a big part of it is this exploration of fandom and i i'm wondering what you both got out of that from a, a fan perspective I mean, like I say, it, it is. It, it remained to the end of the season bizarre to me to sit down and go, well, we're going to talk about the Mountain Goats again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do it again. Talking about myself is always going to be weird to me in some way, even though, like, if you catch me in casual conversation, I probably wind up talking about myself plenty. It's human nature, right? And so, but it doesn't, I mean, the thing is, like, imagine, imagine if we uh, all worked in a library together, right? Mm-hmm. And then in our off time, 
we sat down and talked about libraries. <laughs> it would be so odd, right? You'd say, well, no, I would rather talk, I'd go see a movie. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so it's not, not that it's a pain or anything. It's just it, because it's sort of necessary uh, in parsing this bizarre thing that, as far as we know, only humans do without prompting art, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's worth processing in some way. But the way that we process it is so reflective you know, I mean, like, I, I had a, a shtick in a, a zine I used to write where, you know, people, whoever was credited with saying that, that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And I've always thought dancing in front of a building that completely knocks you over seems to me an utterly fantastic response. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, that's actually much better than saying, this building is 900 feet tall, and it does this and that, which conveys nothing of the building to you, but a good dance might, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so this is sort of like that. It's trying to find a way to, to locate what's inside a song and express it in some way other than just listening to it. Mm-hmm. And what about for you, Joseph? I'm, I'm interested because you're, you are the person coming in as, as the fan. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing to, to have the experience of getting fans of your work and, and realizing what the other side of that looks like. When we see work that we find transcendent, I think it is human nature to want the person who makes it to also be transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, we want the person who makes it and the work to be kind of inseparable. And having fans doing the work that gets fans, you you it really disabuses you of that notion. Mm-hmm. We have that thing of like, don't meet your heroes. But I think that only is a problem if you expect your heroes to be heroes rather than humans. Right. If you become okay with the fact that great art is all made by humans, that all great art ever was made by just people, just people otherwise living their lives. It becomes a lot more interesting because it, it becomes a thing that doesn't exist in in this other realm. Art, art becomes a thing that people do. Mm-hmm. It becomes an action. So yeah, I, I think thinking about art in more human terms is something that, that making something that got fans did for me. Um, Joseph Fink and John Darneal, co-hosts of I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Joseph Fink and John Darneal are the co-hosts of I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats from Night Vale Presents. To find out more about their show, hit up biglisten.org. Want to check out the Big Listen's back catalog of shows? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and download those puppies. You can hear super fun interviews with folks like Katie Couric, LeVar Burton, and my soon-to-be future boyfriend, Jonathan Groff. A girl can dream, right? The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Jacqueline Hyman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was and am feeling so much gratitude for our community of big listeners. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. Super big special thanks to Al Reynolds, Mike Bononis, Beck Feldhouse Adams, Chris Chester, Hans Anderson, and our former interns Claire Donnelly, Camila Salazar, and Abby Holtzman. Final thanks to my main man, Jacob Fenston, without whom this ship would never have set sail. The Big Listen is, slash was, brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yor, and has been produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from me. That's right, me. When we started this quirky little show more than two years ago, we wanted to try something different. We wanted to put podcasts on the radio. 
But more than that, we wanted to elevate the voices heard in the podcast world. Increasingly, podcasting is accessible to more and more people, and it's giving folks an opportunity to be heard. And we wanted to spotlight that. And in my estimation, we've done a pretty great job at that. It is my hope that in listening to the show, you've heard voices that were previously unfamiliar to you. Maybe you got a new insight or gained some perspective that you didn't have before you put your ears on us. And hopefully, hopefully, we entertained you along the way. But from the beginning, The Big Listen was an experiment. Lots of things worked, but some things didn't. And so The Big Listen is packing it in and making space for new projects. Over more than 50 episodes, I'd like to think we accomplished most of what we set out to do. And I'm so grateful to you for listening. Whether this is your first time hearing us or whether you've been a devoted listener since the start, I appreciate the time you've given us. I truly do. Thank you for calling and writing and telling your friends about the show. Honestly, we could not have done it without you. We might be winding down, but that doesn't mean you need to stop exploring. And you really shouldn't. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there begging to be listened to, but it'll be up to you to find them. So for one last time, thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, whenever that might be, keep listening, America. This is NPR.